And we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns. As usual, I'm joined by the Autism Sage yourself, Mama Baden. How are you? I am doing well. It was a good productive week and weekend. And we have um, a guest that I am thrilled to have um, here with Shifting the Narrative. Sam, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi. Um, this is, I'm very happy to be here. Um, so my name is Sam. I am an autistic adult, and I'm also the parent of an autistic five-year-old and an autism researcher. So my PhD was actually in physics, but towards the end of my PhD, I was spending so much time essentially all of my free time thinking about autism and essentially doing informal autism research. And so after finishing that, I've just basically been spending pretty much all of my time thinking about how we can make more opportunities for autistic kids and autistic adults. And also just how we can have research that's focused on quality of life in autistic individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is um, probably one of the reasons or the motivations behind our podcast is, you know, I want the next generation of adults to have a better quality of life um, and, and less trauma driven autobiographies. I'd love to have less of those. I understand that trauma is part of life, but there's some that can be avoided. Can you tell, um, I'm curious to know a little bit about your research in terms of your physics major and you know we all have things that we've gotten degrees in and then it facilitates into something else so tell me a little bit about that yeah uh it's interesting i think when i was younger i really enjoyed the um i guess concreteness of mathematical proofs Mm -hmm. um you know when it comes to an essay or something that's a little bit more subjective it felt like you never really know for sure when it's done But if you're working on a math problem or a proof, um, it's sort of like a logical puzzle. And so there's a sort of definitiveness to it that I I thought was really neat. And it kind of helped me make sense of things. Um, And my, throughout graduate school, I actually focused on quantum information theory, which was, it's an interesting topic. Um, I'm starting to realize how much I've forgotten about it, even just in a couple of years of being away. but essentially it's, it's sort of neat to think about what quantum computers can do that we can't necessarily do with classical computers. Um, but I guess I was, I didn't really have like the burning passion for quantum information theory that a lot of my coworkers did. I was very interested in autism and especially just, um, I feel like with autism research, there's a chance to see a little bit more of an immediate impact in the world. Um, whereas quantum felt a little bit more impersonal to me. Why I really enjoyed switching fields. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I have one follow up question, then I'll hand it over to Torin and not hog the mic. I would, I'm curious to know, especially for our listeners who are a lot of parents, do you recall or have your parents said anything you did as a child that was indicative or connected to your need for the concrete, the physics and the the research sort of getting the information and it's finished? Um, I think, I'm not sure if this is quite the anecdote that that one would be looking for, but um, I I was very fascinated by anatomy when I was younger, like understanding the human body and understanding 
animal, like how um, animals anatomy works and so on. Mm-hmm. And we lived on a farm. So I, I should probably put like some kind of content warning for um, deceased animals here, but we lived on a farm where there would be frequently um, like rodents or, or uh, other animals that were deceased and like their limbs would be on the ground. And I was really fascinated by trying to understand how their body worked. So I would um, put the, like a snake tail, for example, we just found on the ground. I put it in a plastic bag and then I would freeze it because I thought if I froze it, it would be preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, I, when my mother went to get popsicles <laughs> and she found like a box with bags of frozen <laughs> animal parts, I think she was simultaneously <laughs> alarmed because that wasn't what she was expecting. But also she figured that there's some kind of like research curiosity there. Um, so I guess that was... I absolutely love that story. <laughs> It's such a great story because kids really do the darndest things for reasons that we sometimes don't understand. And of course, they're not able to articulate. They know why they're doing it, but it's, you know, to articulate it so that others understand. Thank you for sharing that fun story. I think that's a perfect example. And the reason I asked is because I'm always trying to help parents understand that those things that their children do that they may not understand or they may like be annoyed with that could be the start that leads into um, the career. We've already decided that the kiddo I talked about earlier, who um, I don't like to use the word obsessed, but he is clearly enthralled with timers. And I said, you know what? When he goes to high school, he can work the clock on the football team. He can be the one at the base basketball. That's what he can do as his participation in high school because he likes to start the timer and stop it. Like, there we go. We can facilitate that into an inclusive um, job for him at high school. All right, Taryn. One of the things I'm really curious about, you mentioned you were a researcher. So my first question is, what sort of uh, autism-related research did you do? Because I'm really curious about that. So my current research study is uh, sort of looking at a few different things. We're hoping to actually apply a little bit of my STEM background by using machine learning in it. But essentially what we're trying to do is to, um, it started out with trying to develop a enhanced screening tool for autistic adults. So I think there's a lot of research showing that there's diagnostic disparities, um, like the age that people receive their diagnosis based on race and based on gender, uh, probably socioeconomic background as well. Um, And there have been some I think actually in the past few years, I've seen more tools coming out that aim to account for whether someone is masking autistic traits when they get a diagnosis. Because historically, if someone's masking, they just won't get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. um, because the tools were basically asking things like, do you memorize large sequences of numbers? Like more stereotypical things, do you never make eye contact? Um, And so if someone has trained themselves to do those things, it would just count against them effectively. Or you you know they're trying to lead you to an answer like, yeah. and I, I apologize for cutting you off. Stacy sent me a sensory profile recently and the numbers were all out of whack. It didn't give me an accurate answer because I could tell the questions they were asking were based off someone who knew nothing about autism. And I understood they were trying to lead me into saying things about myself that I frankly believe were not true. So I answered them in the best way I could honestly. And they were like, oh, this person's not autistic. Which is, which is a joke. If you've ever met me, that's the joke. But it's because they a lot of it's based off, do you fit these stereotypes? Yeah, absolutely. So we're hoping to kind of 
uh, train a, ideally to train a neural network um, to kind of use machine learning based on a really large uh, set of participants which we're hoping to get um, to sort of see whether that can give more accurate um, results. Because currently, typically, if you take a screening tool, even if it's developed really well and the questions are inclusive, they'll often just have you add up things. So maybe like you'll just add up the questions you check yes to. So maybe you'll have like five yes, two no, then your score is a five, and it doesn't really matter what the pattern of yes answers are. But with um, reinforcement learning, that algorithm could potentially learn the pattern rather than just simply summing things up. And so it could perhaps be more effective. Um, but I think it will also hopefully allow us to look at other interesting correlations, like, um, you know, how some of them, which also have been researched a little bit already, but like how someone's, how much they mask might impact their mental health and individual correlations within subcategories of that. Um, but also to hopefully find things that we maybe wouldn't have thought of looking for at the beginning, but that might emerge as we start analyzing the data. No, that's that that that's really cool. And yes. I've always I've always been interested in stuff like that, but I'm not smart enough to like read numbers to and statistics. Jesus Christ, one of those words I feel pronouncing. I've just never been smart enough. I'm not good with numbers. I'm the complete opposite. The second part of my question is. There has been a debate going on for a few years within the autism community and a debate that I've had with myself over like autism and presenting itself and how it presents itself in different genders, like male and female autism. In any of your research, have you noticed any differences in like general trends and presentations in autism, depending on gender or any others like um identity that might present itself differently and i mean like in general trends because obviously there's always going to be exceptions uh great question so i guess in my own in our own personal research study uh because it's not published yet and we're still recruiting i'm not sure how much i'm allowed to talk about the trends from that so far but i know that from some other research studies that have come out recently they have shown that i believe that autistic women uh, and possibly also just autistic transgender people in general have um, higher levels of masking or camouflaging um, and may also be more prone to like, internalizing. I, I don't really like the word symptoms, <laughs> but I guess like the way that's often presented in research is like internalizing versus externalizing symptoms. So perhaps appearing to be more uh, withdrawn or shy or maybe um, generally tending more towards the side of shutdowns rather than meltdowns. Although, as you mentioned, it's very much a general pattern. And so I'm sure it varies a lot from person to person. No, that's that's exactly what, what I was getting at, because I work a lot of autistic people. Stacey works a lot of autistic people. And I have noticed that there are that autism tends to present itself in certain ways and in depending on a bunch of different factors, but in terms of gender. but a lot of that I can't explain because some of it is obviously nurture. So in the case of autistic women, and obviously you can't speak on this as much because you're still researching it and there's a lot of research yet to be done. When it comes to autistic women or people or assigned female at birth, because of how society treats women, there there's a lot of, it makes sense there's more masking because there are certain things that men get away with that women can't. But I've also noticed certain things that just kind of don't line up. For example, with uh, transgender individuals, 
how their autism presents tends to be in line with their identity, not their assigned at birth, which means not all of it can be biological and not all of it can be social either. Not all of it's based off their chromosomes and not all of it's social because you have a trans person, at least for part of their life, they're socialized by whatever's on their birth certificate, at, at least for some part, but yet it tends to present as what their actual identity is. So I found that weird. Now, I wouldn't say weird. I found it fascinating. So it, it's things like that that because there's a lot of discourse that I'm that I'm glad you mentioned it that you have a background in this because I because I have these ideas that uh, kick around my head you know. So I, I just yeah, have to do a. I'm so sorry, Sam. Side note, Torin said earlier, "Oh, I'm not that smart." You just made the most phenomenal intellectual statement and theory and question and like the way you just put it together, like, oh, and consider this, I'm like, really, Torin, you don't think that you're smart? All right. I mean, smart in terms of like numbers and stuff. Like, I'm <laughs> terrible with numbers. Like, things that you can quantify. Like, we just did a podcast about uh, some of my assessments, and my IQ was like 100, which is about as average. Literally, you can't get more average than 100. I, I was also going to say, I thought, I think your points are really interesting one. Um, and it's something that I I think I had been wanting to think about, but hadn't framed well in my mind. So I really appreciated hearing it from you. Where I I do think that often for trans people, I guess myself included, I'm a transgender man. That the way that our autism presents can be much more in line with our gender identity. Um, like for myself, I've uh, I think I'm pretty like stereotypically autistic in a lot of ways. I've never really had people question whether I'm autistic or not, which I think is something that a lot of autistic women experience, mm -hmm. not all of course, but like many, like at a much higher rate. Um, and I think that's that's the area where I wish, where I wish that research would um, do a little bit more distinction because often there will be research that's based on um, the person's, I guess, uh, biological sex, but it won't, doesn't look at gender identity. So I think that would be a, that'd be a cool area of research. Um, no, that is a really cool area um, that needs to be uh, looked into. And, you know, I was thinking, listening to you, Torrent, in terms of, you know, whether it's nature versus nurture or, you know, how you were socialized. From my sort of lens, if I look at an educational lens, through an educational lens, the response from adults to boys differs than response to um, response from adults to girls, right? So I feel like sometimes that generalized response to boys and to girls, it's different. So girls are almost forced to mask because of the responses that they're getting. <laughs> um, whereas boys can move around and wiggle and and no one you know oh boys are just boys right it's not a big deal but girls um get a little bit more pushback right on um things that they may do stimming and the expectations and so their the response to them um forces them like just to start masking really early i was um thinking of one of my adult clients and she i remember talking to her parents and they said she doesn't answer. She never answers us. Like she just stands there. I know, I know that she knows how to talk. And so I'm thinking, okay, I know why she didn't answer. Um, and then I'm speaking to her and she said, 
you know, I would always get in trouble because I wouldn't answer. And then everybody would call me shy. And I was like, no, I'm not shy. I just don't have access to my words. But of course, she couldn't articulate that. And so she learned to mask really heavy to meet the expectations of everyone else. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. I'm, it's not my journey to go back to school and do research, but it's hopefully somebody will. Yeah, I promised my children and my wife that I was not going to go back to college anymore. Like, that's it. <laughs> no more college. <laughs> I love college. All right. This is so interesting. But, but before this goes off the rails a little bit too much, because I could just go on for days. I have all these sociological theories that I love to kick around. But like I said, I'm not I'm not good with numbers, so I can't like crunch statistics and things like that. Hey, I said it right that time. One of the things I'm always curious about when we have autistic adults is your like autism journey, for lack of a better word. Uh, when you were diagnosed, how you felt as a kid, stuff like that. So what is like your autism journey? Good question. <laughs> I, uh, that's, sorry, I'm I'm very used to talking about my research. I'm less used to talking about my own personal experiences. Um, Take your time. I, don't worry about it. Yeah. So I uh, grew up in a town where there wasn't a lot of knowledge about autism that um, that went beyond. I, I think the the conception that people had of autism would be um, very stereotypical, like a, a young boy with higher support needs. And it was a very pathologizing uh, way of, of conceptualizing that as well, because um, I think people who were disabled were viewed more as uh, like objects of charity in some ways. So it was well-intentioned perhaps, but not the healthiest view. Um, and so I guess based on that model, there wasn't really um, if if you didn't have sort of higher support needs, you probably wouldn't get diagnosed or assessed um, for anything. And um, also because, yeah, I, I was obviously perceived as a girl at that time. I think autism is viewed as very much a, a male condition. Um, and so that probably also contributed to it. So I wasn't assessed. Um, I ended up developing pretty severe anxiety by the time I got to high school, which is actually partially why I uh, went into physics actually, because I realized that if I, um, essentially if I placed out of all the math and physics courses in my high school, I could get permission to teach myself. <laughs> um, and so I could have like access to my own classroom. There was just like a little small room. It wasn't really a full classroom, but I could just sit there and teach myself for a couple hours a day. And so that was really helpful because um, as you can probably tell from like just our conversation, I rock back and forth a lot. I wasn't really allowed to do that in high school. Speaking of female socialization, I did learn like if I applied chapstick constantly or like twirled with my hair, that was a more socially acceptable form of stimming. So I was applying chapstick like every three seconds when I was in classes that had other people. Um, but I'd still have have panic attacks. So it was, it was a pretty rough, pretty rough go. Um, and I wasn't formally diagnosed as autistic until I was um, 27. But I guess like outside of just the you know obvious personal feeling of not fitting in and social stigma and all that. Um, there was something I think ideologically 
uh, interesting, which is that I came from a very fundamentalist background for the most part. Oh, Christ. Um, and I definitely, uh, like my own beliefs right now are very, very different from when I was growing up. Um, but, and I wish that I'd change my beliefs much faster. But I also feel like I had this certain skepticism or or questioning that I'm not sure how much of it's due to autism and how much of it's just personal um but it feels like you're supposed to kind of believe things because God said so and I would kind of want to question that or like hear different perspectives um even though I was still quite religious um growing up I I think I was much more curious about other perspectives. And I, I've always wondered like to what extent autism had something to do with that. Um, I have seen some research showing that autistic people are less inclined to follow things just because they're social norms or because they're popular around us. And so I, th I think it's, maybe there's some correlation. So, well, could, could you repeat that? You said autistic people are more likely to follow things based off the people around them or less likely? Less likely. Less less like, that that makes sense. It's why we get diagnosed with things yeah. like uh, uh, pathological demand avoidance and oppositional defiance disorder because we just kind of that's where the original some of the original diagnostic criteria for Asperger's came from. When Hans Asperger's, the Nazi, was assessing students, one of his criteria he noticed is that a lot of the kids in his uh, pediatric clinic weren't enthusiastic about things like Hitler Youth rallies and found that to be weird. And that was part of his diagno original diagnosis criteria for what we at the time called Asperger's. So what I'm hearing is that in that time, autistic individuals were advocating by saying no thank you or no very loudly. And the, uh, I guess behavior modification uh, perspective came into play because we have to make everyone love uh, Nazi rally. <laughs> yeah, because they're not, because yeah. of, because fascism. They're yeah. Nazis. Actually, so speaking, I'm sorry for cutting you no. off. No, um, but you kind of, you set me up for a question I want to ask. Unfortunately, you set me up perfectly. Uh oh. So, so speaking of fascists, in a bunch of states, but. Georgia in particular, it came out that they pa they're they passing a bunch of uh, anti-trans laws. And in Georgia, part of the language for the anti-trans laws are basically, they worry that a lot of people who are, a lot of teenagers in particular who are, who are seeking trans-affirming care, that they're not actually trans, they're just autistics, they don't know any better. That's how the law is being pitched. So basically, if they have a diagnosis of autism, or some other developmental delay, they're automatically denied because, well, they don't know any better. So I'm gonna hand, I'm gonna give you a softball question. Has in any of your research you come across, you found that autistic people are not capable of understanding their gender? Has there been any research show that? So technically, I think that there might be research to show that, but if it exists, it's probably funded by groups that specifically wanted to get that answer. Like my understanding is that there are a lot of interest groups related to transgender topics where it's like yes. they will only publish things that kind of perhaps on both sides, but you know, uh, I think that from my personal perspective for what it's worth, and I, I have to admit I don't know as much about LGBTQ topics as I do 
autistic uh, advocacy, but I, I have seen research showing that autistic people are about six to seven times, I think, is a statistic more likely to be LGBTQ. But I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it kind of goes back to what I've heard anecdotally from a lot of people, and I think partially in my own experience, is that autistic people are less likely to absorb social norms just for their own sake. Like the idea that because you're labeled as a girl, you must do this or you must identify that way. Um, I think that it's possible that there's also a biological component. I, I believe there's some research that shows autistic people have slightly different hormone profiles. I'm not sure to what extent that actually plays a role. Um, but again, I don't think that that correlation is necessarily a bad thing. Um, correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah, and it, it definitely doesn't necessarily equal causation. Um, and there's one other thing that I was thinking here, and I'm trying to remember it. Um, I think autistic people may also be... Okay, this is this is harder to articulate, but I feel like if you're autistic, you're already quite socially marginalized in a lot of ways. So in a way, like... Personally, I felt like I didn't have that much to lose by adding transgender onto it. Like people are going to think I'm super weird no matter what I do. I might as well be weird and happy, right? Exactly. <laughs> weird and increasingly miserable. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I personally think that autistic people and non-autistic people, as long as someone has like a clear informed consent that they, uh, you know, that they that they understand their gender and can benefit from from treatment just as much as mm -hmm. anyone else um and in some ways maybe even more so because it is a marginalized group and so facing added like stigma or barriers could be even, even harder um, can be tough for sure and that's uh, the research I've shown and I'll, I'll, I'll kick it right back to Stacy. I'm sorry. Yeah, the research I've, I've seen, I said I've shown, the research, like I, like I feel like I've done anything. The research I've seen does show a higher correlation with autistic individuals and being LGBT and being trans. I've seen a lot of research that. I haven't seen a lot of research going the other way that we're not capable of sensing our own sexuality or gender. But it also makes sense because of what you also said. But the reason states like Georgia are putting in that rule is they're doing what's known as taking correlation and using it as causation. So an uh, antidote that I like to give is a bunch of years ago, they found that people like young women who come from households that have a large amount of kitchen appliances tend to not have a have as high a rate of teen pregnancy. So the more kitchen appliances you have, the lower the rate of teen pregnancy, that, at least according to the odds. So if you took that as causation, you'd say, if I buy a bunch of stuff in my kitchen, my daughter won't get pregnant because there was a correlation. Now, the reality is the more kitchen appliances you have, probably the more disposable income you have. And there is, and we do know there is causation between poverty and like mm -hmm. every negative social outcome. So that's mm -hmm. the thing. So that's that's the end of what I like to use. So correlation is not equal causation. I'm gonna kick back to Stacy to get this back off the or, or off the the uh sort of social rails and back to our normal sort of topics that can help parents. So I'm 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 kicking it back to you for this one, Stacy. Well, no, this is this is all insightful. Um, so I would love to know 
ideally in an ideal, like your research and the results of your research, what are you hoping it facilitates a change or what would be like, I hope that with this research, then people start and then we end up having this. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm happy to answer that for, for this particular research project. Um, the ideal outcome would be, first of all, a really effective screening tool um, that can be implemented and that can help autistic adults or people who are questioning whether they might be autistic can kind of serve as a useful starting point for them. Um, and just that can feel, this is maybe more of a subjective thing, but they can feel less pathologizing as they're taking it. Um, but I guess other concrete things that I'm hoping to understand would be to understand specifically where diagnostic disparities are coming from. Um, I think there's been a lot of research showing that diagnostic disparities exist related to race and gender. Um, and some research talking about how masking might be contributing to those disparities related to gender, but I would love to know specifically which questions or like specific topics might be driving those disparities or what specific aspects of our current diagnostic screening might be contributing to that. Um, like on a more individual question level, I think that would be really interesting and could maybe help us modify parts of the current approach, even if people aren't using this specific tool, but it could hopefully feel a broader understanding. Um, and then I guess, uh, for also like looking at correlations between masking uh, autistic traits, mental health, maybe finding certain general clusters or subtypes through unsupervised learning, uh, machine learning. Um, and then for future research, something that I would really love to do, uh, which is a little bit unrelated to this, but is to, two things. One is to see if we can use some kind of longitudinal clustering to predict healthcare outcomes in autistic people. I, there's research showing that a lot of autistic people have certain rare conditions at a much higher rate. I mean, epilepsy, I guess that's not necessarily a rare condition, but is often quite co-occurring with autism. There's things like either Stanlow syndrome that are quite related, but it would be really neat to have um, something that can scan someone's medical records, like a an algorithm that can scan someone's healthcare records and predict like, okay, this person might benefit from being screened uh, for this specific condition, because even though we're all autistic, there's a lot of variety within the autistic community, mm -hmm. of course. And so um, someone with a certain uh, presentation or characteristics related to their autism might need to be screened for epilepsy more so than you Stanlis, whereas another autistic person might benefit from the opposite. Um, and then I guess the third thing that I'd be really interested in would be specifically how to encourage self-advocacy in people with the highest support needs. I feel like people with higher support needs are, and especially people with co-occurring intellectual disabilities, are very much uh, neglected in the neurodiversity movement. And that's something I think I've, like I'm trying not to do. I don't think I do it perfectly. Um, but when we talk about self-advocacy, I think it's so often focused on people who can advocate in ways that are somewhat typical in format, even if even if we might be autistic while we're doing so, like such as spoken presentations or um, even even non-speaking individuals who use AAC. I think that's also an area that's been 
neglected. So I would, I would love to see more about different types of advocacy uh, and how, I, I guess, like how we can determine whether approaches with a certain person and say like a group home, for example, might be benefiting their quality of life or in line with what they want if the person does have limited communication at the time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think about um, just with, uh, you know, the concept of wanting things to be better. So we definitely need more professionals that understand the necessity of adults needing to have the appropriate diagnosis, right? However, it's like, we still don't have enough people to diagnose kids. Are we going to get there, right? Um, and then are we going to get to a point where there is a, um, I know that Judy Endow does some training for um, therapists uh, that work with the neurodivergent population, but are we going to get more um, research that facilitates training so that psychologists and, and, and folks and psychiatrists, psychologists, whoever it is, when a parent who has a child that's autistic realizes, I think this is me, and they go to this person that this person knows this is a valid statement of something to look into, right? Um, and, and how do we get that sort of, like, how do we get, how do we get people to know? Um, I mean, I know that's a huge question, but when I think of like your research, I'm like, okay, this is great. And we have all this good information, like we know what to do now. How do we get that done with more people than resources, right? Like, how do we get that done? And I know, I don't, I don't know. I'm just turning, want to turn the dial and make it better. Um, <laughs> uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Just, are we moving in that direction? I mean, because I don't know everything that's going on. Are we looking at those things to make it so that adults have access? That's a, I think that's a really interesting question. And you're completely right that diagnosis is just the first step in many cases. I mean, I, I personally think that for adults who are comfortable with self-identification as being autistic, then diagnos diagnosis might not even be a step that they need. Um, uh, so it's kind of, it's a helpful step for many people and it can lead to, you know, the family understanding the child better or a person understanding themselves better, having more certainty. But you're right that there's so much more to it than just providing good diagnostic services for people because even if someone gets a diagnosis, that's like, you know, one or two appointments of their life would be three depending on how it's set up. And then what happens after that? I, I would love to see more resources written for parents of young autistic children um, and more research on how to support parents at that time, because I think that so often it's framed as a loss or a tragedy for the family, which is really sad. I mean, we, part of the reason that I started a, um, a company that offers like, it's, it's essentially run like a nonprofit basically, that essentially offers like playgroups and summer camps and such for autistic children is because when my child was diagnosed, we tried to find family groups um so he could have like connection and we could have connection but 
a lot of people were essentially mourning their child being autistic. And that was very, um, it, it just felt like such a, a it, it wasn't an environment that we wanted to bring him to, you know, like we didn't want him to bring, to go somewhere and then feel like he was a burden on us or anything. Cause he's wonderful. Like he's a great joy in our life. So I would love to see more on how to show the positive aspects of autism to parents, but then also like, there are parts of autism that are challenging. Um, it's not always, I think for anyone, like not every part of their life is going to be positive all the time. So for the things that are more challenging, how to acknowledge that, but in a respectful way and in a way that, you know, is useful for the parents and also supports the child and leads to better understanding. Um, I, I hope we get there. I, <laughs> I think maybe that's also like another research project of, it almost seems like the best guidance there would be to take autistic people, especially those with higher support needs, and get a large amount of feedback from them on how their experience with intervention and, and schooling went. Because I think school is also such a point of trauma. And I oh, feel it if, is, you know, for parents, you can tell them yes. that your child, your child's wonderful, but then they send their child into a world mm -hmm. that's constantly telling them that yeah. their child won't be accepted at school unless their child changes. It's, it's hard, but I think um, when there's such a high level of stigma, yeah. <laughs> and when in cases a child might even not be accepted at a school unless they are uh, forced to comply in a potentially mm -hmm. traumatized so yeah yeah lots of um misconceptions around what autism is and i mean there's even like people that do i've seen people that have a like a job where they offer helping parents going through the grieving process of getting a diagnosis and i'm like um okay like that is just taking it to a whole nother level right i mean uh, it, it's a good idea to make money like i, I respect the hustle yes like, yes I, I like i'm not gonna fault anybody for no. getting there mm -hmm. i think these mm -hmm. people are scumbags but i i, I get it i do mm -hmm. get it but uh sam as we near towards the end of this i have a couple questions about parenthood since most of our audience are parents Mm -hmm. And so we ask a lot of our autistic parents, what are some of your experiences being a parent of an autistic child who's also you yourself on the spectrum? I know it's a broad question, but what are some of your experiences? What are some of the challenges? Do you think it helps you understand your child more? Stuff like that. Yeah, uh, good question. So I think when, so we, we first, or at least I first, thought he might be autistic when he was very young. So he was born a couple months early. And like one of his first things that he did when he was just a few months old is he was like constantly flapping his hands kind of like this. <laughs> and um, his pediatrician was actually the first person to really label him as autistic. And initially I, I was worried about the label, but not because I thought there was anything wrong with him. I mean, I knew he was a wonderful child. I was just really worried of like, oh, is he going to go through all the bullying that I went through if he's autistic too? Um, and we did, we had a really rough time trying to find schools for him. Um, he was in one school that was, uh, like we went to daycare, we had enrolled him and everything. And then when he got there on the first day, they said, oh, we forgot to read his other packet and we saw that he's special needs. So you're going to have to take him back home until we see if we can <laughs> implement the accommodations. And their reasoning was that 
he like I think he was bottle fed and like most kids his age were sippy had a sippy cup or something and they thought that if other kids saw him using a bottle that it would be contagious <laughs> all the other kids would refer to using a bottle <laughs> I don't I don't think so but um uh, I'm pretty sure it's not how child psychology lesson. works but I could be no. wrong yeah no. there's another school where the where um he actually he was physically restrained at like 18 months old and it was really you know and since we had just a series of a lot of difficulties so there like there's definitely that we took him out of there essentially i've been a stay-at-home uh dad and then, then i work at night i'm i guess i'm lucky that i don't need much sleep um but we've sort of had to make our own opportunities for like play groups summer camps and then to find other disability groups uh, and most of the people in his life right now are autistic adults. And it's not that we don't love non-autistic adults, but it's just that that seems to be the community that's most understanding of them. Um, and we've been really lucky to find a wonderful forest preschool more recently where I go as his aide. And that's kind of fun because I'm basically back in preschool too now, like two days a week. And he like plays in the forest and it's a really inclusive environment with kids of a variety of neurotypes. But I, I guess it's like, I do want to just add that there's some wonderful aspects too. Um, it has been really challenging like with the level of stigma we experience and honestly like almost every time we go outside we have someone ask us if we're disabled or autistic or like some kid point to us um just because of some like the AZ. yeah so it's like it's hard not to be self-conscious but he's just it's wonderful to watch him grow he like has developed his own interests and I think for me it's some of the things that like stick out the most are the really little things like he was he would have been labeled as a very delayed walker and he created his own mode of transportation before that where he kind of like hop on his knees <laughs> to get places and he looks so pleased with himself and i don't know like i think even just seeing how he reacts to water or things that even if i'm even if it can be a little bit tedious sometimes personally like i don't share the interest or like watching this thing drop for an hour straight but i think seeing the intense amount of joy that he can get from it is really uh beautiful and i i feel like like that's contributing something already to the world even if he never puts it to use in a professional context um, which he might put who knows like yeah you never know they not everything has to be something that you eventually use and like we, we all had interests yeah. as kids that mm -hmm. like we don't like I, I didn't have any interest as a kid that equaled up to what i do right now Oh yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. But I, I I I view it as the way he experiences the environment that brings him joy is the foundation of what he can process and do and offer, right? That the rest of us can't because he sees from his perspective and finds that joy. And you know, it's it's this is the last thing I'm gonna say because I know we're we're coming to a close, but you just made me think about the moments and and I will confess, I sometimes feel like like either um wrong or I don't know if it's ableist or whatever it is, but every now and then um over the years, like my kiddos will, my students will do something, right? And and so I'll say, oh, so what is it that you know is out the window that you just feel the need to look at and they're like oh you know i remember one of my students said i'm watching the the pattern of the leaf and counting the seconds between to see and i was like gosh like 
must be so great to be autistic and find those little nuances in the oh, world. Yeah, I would right? do stuff like that as a kid all the time. Yeah. And so sometimes I'm like, I, I don't want to, it sounds horrible to say that, right? Like, oh, I want to be autistic too. But it's really about how wonderful to be able to find joy in something that's just there and that it's such a wonderful gift because the rest of the people around you, you don't have to share it with them, right? Um, and I just appreciate that. Um, so anyway, that's my little, I don't know if uh, it feels wrong, but I'm just being honest. <laughs> it's, it's really about, I love the fact that my kids are like, how cool, like you can see that. Oh my gosh, I can't see that. I don't there, see that. <laughs> there's a certain pleasure in realizing a pattern in something that I think yeah. a lot of us get like seeing the connections mm -hmm. it can also suck too because like i see things that i see really clearly especially in people for whatever reason my special interest as i got older became people mm -hmm. and i see things and like social trends that like either don't get researched for like another 10 years or haven't been yet and everyone thinks i'm crazy like i have all these theories and people think i'm crazy when i was in high school for example I, uh, I I had no idea. I didn't read like psychology books or anything. I had no background in that. And I was talking to the school counselor and I said, I feel like the IQ test isn't a good measure of intelligence, which is an obvious statement. But I said, I feel like it only measures like two types of intelligence. And I think there's more. And the counselor goes, well, how many do you think they are? I said, seven that I noticed, but I think there's more. So he goes, you ever heard of Herbert Gardner? I'm like, who? So basically, I I just observed the multiple intelligence theory just by looking at people in my very small school. Like, that's sort of the observation I have. But it's annoying because I see things. I'm like, why can't everybody else see this? But there's when you see a pattern, something it just works. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go on this tangent, but I, I can't describe it. it it's a sense of like satisfaction and vindication. <laughs> Maybe I'm just crazy. I don't know. Yeah. I think that we all, um, I think that for me, I appreciate that those things are, it's like you're just relishing in the joy of life, right? It doesn't have to be this big fancy. And I think that a lot of people don't do that, right? What's the phrase stop and smell? the roses. Um, uh, I you know, believe I've that's the old one. Now it's touch grass. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I, um, you know, one of my simple joys, I absolutely love, like if I'm really feeling whatever, I get in the car, drive, turn the music up loud, dance, and I don't care, don't even think about who's watching me at the red light, I have no idea and try to go down a windy road. Cause I love that feeling when I go down the hill, my stomach goes, whoa. And then I'm a whole different person 30 minutes later. Like just, it's like, this is so fun. Right? Um, and I think people just miss out on that. And I think my autistic students stop, right? Like, oh, I can't do math right now. I have to enjoy the flicker of the leaf because at noon it'll be gone because the reflection will be somewhere else. I can appreciate that. All right, are we are we are we we're, winding we're, down, Tori? Yeah, we're, I, we're we're up against time. So, yes. uh, is there anything this, you uh, you two would like to say before we get going? 
I want to say thanks to Sam for sharing personal insight. And I do also um, appreciate and hope our listeners took away your little nuggets in regards to your perspective as an autistic parent of an autistic child. Um, and uh, I'm going to hope that your little one has some good school experiences because that can be tough. Yeah, I think he finally is in a school where he's thriving quite a bit, which is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Took about five years to get there, but there. And yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for, for letting me join. I really appreciate the opportunity and it's great to see you both again. No, this was good. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know um, the timeline of your research, but, you know, Torn, I think it might be great when, um, like even to get a couple of the participants, right? I'd love to have like sort of a round table of people's perspective of, um, uh, you know, participating in the research. Cause I do think it is something very important that needs to be discussed, addressed, researched. And um, it is, I mean, I, I meet so many parents that are just wondering and they need something concrete to say, hey, <laughs> this is like, use this, right? Um, so thank you, Sam, for doing the work and, and thanks to everyone who's on that research um, committee or doing whatever it is that you have to do to get it all done, because I know it's a lot of work. I'd be happy to share the, the research survey link with you. If sure, sure, sure. That, that, yeah. that's great. We'll make sure Actually, all of that is in the description. Yeah. I just want to thank you for uh, coming on. I had a list of questions, like kind of in my head of what I wanted to ask, and I got some of them in. But when you came on and mentioned that you were a PhD researcher, there was just, I had to order. Yes, I just admitted I didn't do uh, guest research because you were suggested by uh, Shuba, who was a guest on his podcast. And if Shuba suggests someone, I trust them implicitly. So I just, I just trust that you'd make a dope guest and you did. So... Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I didn't waste your time. <laughs> I've not been on podcast. And Stacy, that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. See ya.